Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Hope you're staying safe and infection-free out there. Uh, today on the show, we've got a great guest. We've got Elisa Fink, the former chief marketing officer at Tableau. She's an advisor to our sponsor, Outreach. And what she really is, is just a wealth of experience and knowledge about how to build and scale a marketing organization. And she just has all the right ideas. She has enthusiasm and passion for what she does. And she's helped take a company from $5 million in recurring revenue, past a billion in revenue, and take a company public. So I just think it's a great conversation. She's incredibly insightful. And I really liked uh, just listening listening to her thoughts, listening to her insights. So um, that's the show. Now, before we get there, we want to thank, of course, we want to thank our sponsor. Our sponsor is Outreach. Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams by enabling them to humanize communications at scale. By prioritizing the right activity, scaling customer engagement with intelligent automation, Outreach makes customer-facing teams more effective and improves visibility into what really drives results. And by the way, as you probably know, and if you don't know, I run a company called Revenue Collective, and we are putting our money where our mouth is because we are new customers of Outreach. And so we are excited about the power of Outreach as the leading sales engagement platform. They just do outstanding work. Without further ado... Without further ado, let us listen to Elisa Fink on the Sales Hacker Podcast. I promise you, this is a great episode. Hey, everybody. It's Sam Jacobs. Welcome back to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Today on the show, we are incredibly excited to have one of the leading CMOs and marketing voices, now an advisor, but somebody that really has been a global CMO on a truly global scale in the enterprise software business. We've got Elisa Fink on the show. Now, Elisa is mainly known uh, for her work taking Tableau software from just $5 million in annual recurring revenue through $1.1 billion through an IPO. Uh, she left just prior to the acquisition by Salesforce, but she's seen so much over the course of helping, helping build what has truly been you know, one of the iconic business intelligence companies and platforms that have emerged over the last you know, 15 to 20 years. Prior to Tableau, she served in marketing, product management, and product engineering executive positions at IXI, Tele Atlas and other technology companies. She began her career selling advertising for the Wall Street Journal. She holds a BA from Santa Clara University, an MBA in marketing decision systems from USC, and she advises a number of incredible tech companies and serves on multiple boards, including our sponsor, Outreach, the leading sales engagement platform. So, and clearly she's doing a great job there because they are, they are you know, past $100 million in annual recurring revenue and on their way to global domination. So, <laughs> Elisa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's really a pleasure to be here. We're excited to have you. So the way we start every show is by uh, what we call your baseball card, which is which is a form of, you know, essentially your bio, but uh, condensed into a few data points. So we know that your name is Elisa Fink. Just give us a little bit about sort of your current role, what you're currently doing so that we understand a little bit about, I mean, I read your bio, but give us a little bit of context for your background and your expertise. Sure. So you did read my bio, which is great. And I think what more than anything is my baseball card is the love of marketing and the love of data. And I think that's what's really driven my career, uh, my entire my entire life. Even when I was in sales for the Wall Street Journal, it was really about selling audiences and so selling those numbers. And so I've always been kind of a person uh, interested in stats, interested in data, and interested in how those drive stories for people. But of course, the human side of that, because I always say one thing about marketing and sales is it's not if then else, people are not necessarily behaving rationally to the rules all times. So it's like you got to bring the science to the work, to the job, but you've also got to bring the art. 
So in terms of my baseball card, it's really about that kind of journey of growth through those kind of vagaries of all the different phases that you face as you're growing. It makes a lot of sense to me. So tell me how, you know, I just sort of read, let's go back a little bit to yeah. Obviously, the, the you know the end of the, or at least maybe the end of the the third uh, you know the third quarter of the book is you know you leaving uh, Tableau as CMO. But you mentioned that you started selling advertising for the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Walk us through the journey from being in sales, selling audiences, as you just said, to you know becoming a marketer, becoming a fully formed marketer to yeah. the point where you were capable of taking a company past a billion yeah. in revenue. Yeah. Well, so when I uh, got out of college, I was an English major and trained to do basically nothing. And so I got into sales and I enjoy sales. I enjoyed it because it's a people thing. It's helping people find what they want. But I, what I realized pretty quickly, it took me five years, but I did realize it was a great opener, not a great closer. And you really, I have a lot of respect for salespeople because you got to be a great closer. You got to make those things happen. And it's just really hard. I really worked hard to be pretty mediocre. And I realized too, that my love really had to do with talking about the audiences they were buying, why they were buying, how to reach them. I realized I really loved the marketing and the science of it and the data of it, and even the technology of it. Uh, these were the early years of technology and marketing. So I pretty quickly realized that I needed to take a, basically a step back in my career and start down the wrong path. A lot of people thought I was crazy because I was selling for a very prestigious publication. I had a car phone, an expense account, blah, blah, blah. In those days, it was a big deal. And then I went around, I quit, and I went to this job where I became a client service person. People were just like, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? But it was the best decision I ever made because it got me on the right path. I realized I'm a marketer. I love sales. I love salespeople, but I'm a marketer. And I can do more good for my career and my life and the world if I focus on the things that I enjoy and that I'm good at. And I encourage people to come to terms with where their areas of excellence are because that's how you get to be excellent is you work, work on areas you love and that you care a lot about and that you're good at. And, uh, and that's how you use your skills for the betterment of the world. So it was a big deal I, to make that switch. You know, you mentioned I'm a marketer and I think, especially back then probably, but, but even so, you know, more so now, I think the definition of marketing is varied. I think a lot of people yeah. don't know what marketing is and there certainly really isn't, there's not many, you know, there, maybe they teach marketing at undergrad in some way, but not what it really means to be a yeah. CMO. So yeah. how do you define marketing and, and as you, how did you train yourself to become a marketer? What did that mean mm, for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So first, and when I think about what a marketer is, is I think it's kind of related. I mean, I think this is why I think sales and marketing are so, it's so important to be so well partnered because in a lot of ways, what marketing is doing is two, two, two things that they can do well. One is they should be able to do things well at scale. They should be able to message and reach people at scale and they should be able to open. The second thing is to be able to open conversations, to be an opener. So I was, when I was at the journal, at the Wall Street Journal, I was a really good opener, but I wasn't a good closer. So it was hard for me to close. I mean, I did, but it was hard. So I think what marketers are good at is doing things at scale, uh, sending messages, having conversations, treating audiences, treating customers, treating prospect bases at scale with the right messages at the right time for the right products and the right services. And then being able to be able to open those conversations so that then in partnering with sales, you can provide you together can work on a conversation together and do the right thing so marketing can continue to have the, help the conversation along with things at scale while sa uh, the sales folks are doing the relationship building and really bringing in the business while marketing again continues to do the sort of the background stuff of like the what's the message what's our brand what's our purpose where are people going to know us what about the second order buyer who's not even on the deal what about the third order buyer or the third order influencer or who you know those are things where marketing can do a great 
great job surrounding and supporting the sale, um, individual sales. Meanwhile, all the way doing this at scale in the market, creating brand, creating softness in the market for people to come, not softness, but soft dirt, making it easy for sales to come in and have the right conversations with the right people. So that's how I look at marketing. I look at it as really something that is very much partnered with sales, very much about opening conversations and very much at creating conversations at scale about the right message at the right time with the right people. Is there a certain aspect of marketing? Because it includes so many different things to your point. It includes the brand, it includes demand generation and, you know, systematically opening conversations at scale to your point. Is there a place if somebody thinks they're interested in marketing that you recommend they start? Is there, you know, a core function or a core competency that from which the rest of the marketing apparatus emerges? You know, that's a great question. I think it depends a lot on where your company, where the company is you're targeting um, to work for or that you're working at, um, where they are in their journey. So for many years, the first several years at Tableau, I mean, we, we, the first thing I did when I got there, worked with the executive team to define the brand. We rebirthed it completely um, within like six weeks of my joining. And then we stuck to it like glue. So we had a really clear brand perception because after that, Every touch was a demand generation touch. When you're small, you don't have money to spend just like, I'm going to go spend $3 million on an advertising campaign that isn't going to have any call to action or, or doesn't have much call to action because I'm, I'm trying to build brand. No, every touch, every brand touch is a demand generation touch. Every demand generation touch is a brand touch. So in that respect, I, look, I looked in the early years for really good demand generation people who were very smart and sensitive about message and about brand. So I would say if you're trying to get into it, there's always a need for good demand generation people, particularly on the digital side. That's just not going to change. I mean, where the money is nowadays, a lot of budgets are on the digital side. It's a really complex world. It's very scientific, but there's a lot of need for people to come in with a marketing mind and not just apply the science of it, but bring the art of marketing to it. So I'd probably say demand generation is probably a place to start. Plus it's where the data is. A lot of data comes through those channels and boy, using, being able, that's the second thing I'd say is being able to use and understand data and be able to make implicate, you know, see the implications, get the insight and then apply that insight to your better mark to improve your marketing. That's a strength. So no matter what area you're in, be a person curious with data, use data, whatever it takes. You don't have to be a data scientist, but you should be someone who's really curious about data. And when I say curious, I don't mean just someone who runs cross tabs and runs things and says, these are the numbers. I mean, someone who looks at the data and goes, does it make sense? Does that jive with what I think or what I see or what I believe? Is this data reflecting the reality? How's this really reflecting our business process? You know, what's really going on? And if it's not consistent with your beliefs, asking questions and being curious and getting deeper and more sophisticated with the questions is really the, the, the way forward. So be data curious, but not just data, you know, not just accepting the data, but curious about the data, I think is the second thing I'd say, no matter what discipline of marketing you choose, because all of the disciplines are pretty important. But I think people who come from demand generation, who are sensitive to the messaging, the product marketing side of it are going to have better opportunities to expand their careers into the other areas. That makes a lot of sense. At the same time, I think, you know, really over the last, maybe it's 10 years, but you can correct me since you've been, you know, you have more experience in this world. <laughs> I'm old. Um, well, I'm old too, but you know, you've been, you've been in marketing for, 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 you have enough experience to have a point of view on this. It feels like over the last couple of years, 
this concept that demand generation is the core that you know marketing should be comped on pipeline uh, and then now everybody's saying actually revenue or many people are saying you know we're done with mqls we're done with marketing qualified leads i want a met you know everybody's tied to the same metric and that metric is whether the cash yeah. came in the door or not yeah. but i think there is an underemphasis, or i guess i would love your reaction to yeah. this perspective which is is there an underemphasis on brand do early stage founders and do 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 CEOs and people that don't have a deep marketing, you know, background, and what's your belief on the importance of brand yeah, as it relates yeah. to scale? Because you know, you joined oh. Tableau and did a rebrand, so yeah, that yeah. was the first activity. I think brand is super important. Now, it's one of these things like, oh, there's the book. I think it's like it's you know, you argue about strategy versus execution. Strategy is so important, but really, strategy is probably ten to twenty percent of the job. Execution is like 90 percent of the job. But, you know, bad strategy is going to tear down your execution ability. And I think it's the same thing with brand. If you're not clear on your brand and what you stand for, and you're not putting out there a consistent message, then every demand generation touch is just like a random touch. So I'm a strong believer that, yes, you need to be clear about who you are and represent that brand in everything you do. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean you're, you know, you're spending half your budget on brand. It means you're clear on who you are and what your brand is and what you stand for and how you talk and what your message is. And people are consistent with that. But that doesn't mean it has to be, you know, you still got to put the dollars into demand gen. You know, it's about getting those messages to the market. That's where the money is. That's where the cost is. So it's like, be smart about brand, be smart about message, be smart about your product marketing and about your customers and what, the, what problems you're solving. But that doesn't mean it has to be 80% of what you're doing. Because I do see this a little too much. Sometimes I see people who are brand people or product marketing people or what have you, and they come in and they take on a v VP of marketing or a CMO job, and they think it's all about the message. And, they, and then they kind of stop or they don't push hard enough on getting that message out there. I think a lot of times people underestimate how hard it is for people to hear you. And it's only after hearing you 7, 9, 10, 12, 15 times, whatever it is, that it starts to sink in. So you create a great brand or you create a great brand definition. That doesn't mean you've created a great brand. A great brand is like a, a tree falling in the forest. If it falls in the forest and no one's there, well, did it really fall? Did it, is there a noise? You know, it's the same thing. You can create a great brand or in your mind, have all those elements. But if you don't get that message out there, that's not a great brand. A great brand is an audience that responds to it. A great brand is an audience that responds to it and amplifies it and carries it forward for you. I'm a big believer in community as part of the brand. That's a big deal to us at, at Tableau and at my days where, you know, I knew I knew we had worked hard to create a great brand and that it was working once I saw our community really coming around that brand and wanting to echo it and amplify it and be part of it. And so that's why I'm like getting the message out there is as much a part of the brand as anything. But getting them to raise their hand and be interested, that's the dollars, that's the money. And at the end of the day, you as a marketer got to get the funnel working, got to get the flywheel working. And so you do have to, I'm a big believer in that. The problem with a lot of, um, you mentioned some founders or boards or investors who don't get brand and think it's all just about, you know, you keeping marketers on revenue. I actually pretty much, I, I, I mean, I do want to be tied to numbers and I want to feel like if the sales team is not hitting their targets, they're losing, I'm losing. I want us to win together and I want us to lose together. But marketing also does need to think 12, 18, 24 months out there. They really do. You really have to look down the path and go, you know what's going to come to the, our market in you know, six months? Oh, my God, the Gartner Magic Quadrant. They're gonna, we're going to make it. We're going to be able to big, big enough to qualify. How are we going to start influencing the influencers? Because when we get there, 
we need to be already there, meaning already ready for it. So marketers do have to do a lot of prep work that may not show up in today's funnel or today's today's quota or today's um, pipeline or today's revenue, but it will show up in future revenue. So I think that the board and the executive team has to be able to let marketing have flexibility, excuse me, to think down the road. You have to let them think down the road because more than maybe more than sales, it's not just today's pipeline. It's not just this year's quota. It's like, you got to be thinking down the road. Now you can't be thinking like five years down the road. Those, those days of thinking five years down the road are gone. I mean, you got to be thinking, like I said, 12, 24 months down the road, um, because things are going to happen. Things are going to change, but things are going to happen. And your marketing team needs to be able to prepare the company or prepare your sales and marketing motion for what what's likely to happen. Your point about five years down the road being obsolete only because the world is changing so quickly or you know Absolutely. the expectations Absolutely. are so short term? Uh, more about the world's changing so rapidly. I mean, when I look back and I think, okay, it's 2020, 2015, what, what we were doing in 2015, 2014, I left in 2018. So it was much different. You know, the world was, it's just get, gotten different. And so I think a five-year plan, I mean, while that might've been okay 20, 30 years ago, it's just like, come on, a three-year plan. Okay. And maybe a five-year outlook. Okay. But really your marketing team needs to be 18 months ahead of where you're at at this point. You know, just, just thinking about where, what's going to happen in 18 months. You know, what are we going to do to engage customers? Are we going to have, you know, are we going to be in person with them? Are we going to be doing a lot of field marketing? Or what kind of staff do we need? What kind of tools do we need? What are we going to be doing? How big is the sales team going to be? What do we think we're going to be in revenue? How are we going to get there? You just need to be thinking about those things a little bit down the road because there's a lot of things marketing can do to soften the ground to make it a lot easier to get there. This episode of the Sales Hacker Podcast is brought to you by DocuSign. Every sales org feels the pressure to close deals faster. Take control with the DocuSign Agreement Cloud, a suite of tools that automate sales contracts and quotes all in your CRM. Create custom contracts, get them signed, and pull data back into your opportunities. See why more than half a million businesses use DocuSign with a free trial and discount exclusively for Sales Hacker listeners. Go to go.docusign.com forward slash sales hacker for more information. Our second sponsor is Outreach, the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach supports sales reps by enabling them to humanize their communications at scale, from automating the soul-sucking manual work that eats up selling time to providing action-oriented tips on what communications are working best. Outreach has your back. And now, back to the show. You're a big believer in alignment. Uh, you know, you've yes, talked about yes. how marketing needs to love sales and sales need to love marketing. And of course, yes. that's not the case in many yes. organizations. Yes. What do you think, you know, what are your top lessons, strategies, tips, advice for how to make uh, an aligned revenue organization truly aligned and work together? Well, I think it's really about understanding each other, where you're coming from and what, what's going on. But I think marketing people can really take a, a, a forward step in that, that coming to understand sales better, it's a hard job. Sales is a hard job. Uh, marketing is a hard job. It's all hard, but, but, you know, you're on the line every day, you know, you're facing direct rejection, you know, directly. And so I think it's up to, to marketing. If you're not, if you don't have a good relationship with sales to get in there and start to understand and start to talk to salespeople and understand what works for them, what doesn't work, what are the possibilities? How can this work together? Really having empathy 
but understanding of where they're coming from and what's hard and how could they make their jobs easier. And I think then by getting to know them and getting to understand them and listening to them and creating relationships, especially with those of them that you, you know, that are influential within your organization, you can't have a relationship with every salesperson, but you can, you can, but you can have some extra special relationships who can give you insight into what's happening in the sales organization. You know, having those relationships is going to take you a long way. It's going to inform your decision-making for sure. And then it's also going to allow you to make better decisions. And then it's also going to be an avenue for you to share and communicate why you're doing what you're doing and why it might not be what a salesperson expects. That definitely happens because salespeople have their perspective of like, hey, we should be doing this. We should be doing that. And you might, as a marketer, you know, you're the marketer, you're the marketing professional. You might have a different take on it. You know, you might have a different take on like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. But understanding salespeople well and how to share that with them and then having those people at relationships that you can turn to and get advice, but also ask to help carry the message for you is also super useful. So I think it starts if you have a bad relationship or not a strong relationship with sales, it starts with marketing. If you're a marketer, just get out there and start to understand salespeople. Go on some sales calls. Talk to some customers. Don't undercut your salespeople, but start talking to them and talking to customers and talking to salespeople and getting to understand your market at a granular level more than anything. Don't read research reports. Well, read your research reports, but that does not make you market informed. That does not make you market informed. You're only market informed when you're talking to customers and you're talking to salespeople. I love it. I, um, inspiring words, you know, you, you were, you were there from your tableau from 5 million through 1.1 billion. Yeah. And there is, you know, and it's even more, more common now. So, you know, I run a, an organization that focused on supporting, uh, sales and marketing leadership through their careers and the average yeah. tenure yeah. of a VP of marketing at a high growth company is 17 months. Oh, wow. And you, and, and there's a very, you know, there's, conventional wisdom out there, often propagated by investors that says, she is not the CRO forever. She's the CRO for zero to 10. Yeah. And then once we get to 10 million, uh, there's a, there's a leader that's going to take us from 10 to 30. And then we've got, you know, et cetera, et cetera, through stages of growth. And they are, they are fairly, um, I don't know if it's didactic, but they're, they are, they are yeah. focused yeah. on, replacing people at stages because they believe that, you know, it just requires a different kind of person for every stage. <laughs> How did you make it to 1.1 billion from, I mean, that's an incredible journey. What, yeah. what did you do to be, to always maintain relevance and import, you know, and significance and always add value at every stage yeah. of Tableau's growth? Well, I think number one, you're always thinking about how am I adding value? What am I? And, and then number two, and this is, and, and so one is the outward perspective of how am I adding value, but one is the inward perspective of how am I learning? Am I learning? Am I, am I doing things differently? Am I questioning things? Am I, am I actually open? So uh, the one thing I don't like about that idea that, oh, she's uh, the CRO for zero to 10 is like, okay, bring in your playbook. Okay. And then once we play your playbook, get out. No, that isn't even how that person should be thinking. I don't have a playbook. You know what I mean? Sure, I know a lot of plays and sure I can stack all those plays up and call it a playbook, but I'm not going to play my playbook just because that's the thing I have. I don't actually like that. I actually think like, great, playbooks give you experience. All those plays you've run give you experience and judgment so you can make the right calls in the situations, even if those right calls are things you've never done before. So that kind of makes me sad when I hear that kind of talk because every nobody's, this is the thing. I remember our, our CEO, when we were going public, I said to our CEO, God, you know, Christian, I've never been a CMO of a public company. And he said so wisely, Elisa, every CMO who's a, who is a CMO of a public company has said that at least once in their lives. And I was like, 
you're right. They have said it once in their lives. <laughs> Same thing. Even that CRO for zero to 10, there was a time that person did it once. So guess what? They can do 10 to 25. They can do 25 to 50. Or maybe they can. Granted, not all of them can. But you can't be so close to the idea that people can't learn and that people's skills can expand or that they can think differently or they can be open to change and reflect and love change, frankly, and love growth personally just as much as they love growth of the company. So I do think that's kind of sad when I hear that. And I think that's unwise because you're so much better served with longe- longevity in your leadership because of culture. I mean, culture, culture, yeah. culture. I mean, if you're kicking people out every 10 million bucks or kicking them out every two years, I mean, you know, come on, that isn't how you maintain a great culture. How you maintain a great culture is you have people who are long-term, who represent what you stand for, who are held up as standards or, you know, influencers, and those people help carry your culture. So why wouldn't you want to hire long-term leaders who could grow with the company and show what good growth looks like and and learning and what good learning looks like and meanwhile reflect the culture that you're building i mean uh, like i said i find i find that kind of sad when i hear that i understand it does happen and i have met lots of people in my journey people that i worked with at tableau where it's like okay you're a startup person we're not that size startup anymore maybe you ought to think about leaving. It just happens. You know, I love the zero to 10 or I love the 50 to 200, whatever. Okay. We're 500 now. You don't love it anymore. Okay. Find it, you know, probably time for you to find a new job or let's find something else for you to do. So I get that, but don't, don't, don't force it. Try to hire for the long term, And if it doesn't, you know, if they do a great job for the first 25, great. If it's starting to fall apart after the 25, okay, you got to make a change. But, but I would be looking for people that can grow and expand with you because there's just so much to be gained on that, that side of it. Well, I completely agree with you as a leading question and you answered it correctly. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so speaking of that, of that growth path, what is different? You know, talk to us about, you mentioned you hadn't been the CMO of a public company. So, you know, the, regardless of public or private, you know, tell us about the key differences. If we've got people listening that are running marketing organizations that are sub 20 million in annual recurring revenue, and they want to, they want to take it and anticipate what's going to be different when you cross a hundred million in revenue, 200 million in revenue, et cetera. What are the main things that you think are like mileposts, signposts along the way, skills, new strategies, like what changes as you go from small to big? Sure. So when you're small, nobody knows you. So you can do a lot more, uh, you know, you're fighting for every like mention, you're fighting for every bit of awareness you can get. And you got to treasure those victories, even the little ones, because you're just, you're fighting for everything because no one knows who you are. And really no one cares. So you got to make them care and it's hard and, and they don't have to listen to you. They don't necessarily have to listen to you. So you got to be compelling in an interesting way. So you're just, and what that does allow because of that is you can be incredibly creative and inventive. You know, you can take chances and risks that, that other companies, much bigger companies can't do. They can't take those kinds of risks or chances, not only because they have this uh, existing brand that they have to live up to, but also because the media will pay attention to, or people will pay, not just media, but social media, every kind, will pay attention to your experiments that fail or your risks that don't work out. But when you're little, you can take a lot of risks. And we did. And some of them were great and you know, galvanized us to further growth. And some of them were failures and we learned from them. Now, as you get bigger, and particularly when you go public, now, now people are a little more interested in hearing from you. So it's a little bit more like, especially when you go public, all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's almost a marketing event in and of itself because now you're a public company. So now you're much more visible. You know, there's so many more avenues open to you. And because you're public, they're interested in your story a lot of times. Now, a lot of times it's the financial story, but still you get a lot of, you get a lot more interest. So as you're growing to that stage, the same thing starts to happen. 
analysts start to pay more attention to you, influences start to pay more attention to you. So it's a little easier to get the attention. It's harder is knowing the right things to say to the right people at the right time, taking those risks, but taking calculated risks so that you're not, um, you're not just like taking uh, crazy risks for the sake of crazy risks. You're doing smart risks. So you have to be a little smarter, a little more savvy about the kinds of risks you're willing to take in order to get that edge. Because when you're little, you'll take a lot of risks because you've got to get the edge. Whatever, when the other guys are zigging, you're zagging. You're doing things differently. You've got to break out. You've got to break out of the clutter. Once you've broken out of the clutter, you don't want to stop taking risks, but you want to be savvy about those risks. You want to be um, use your best judgment about those risks. So, you know, mitigating the risk or trying some things in smaller avenues or smaller environments, if you can. Nowadays, almost everything is global, but you have to be a little more savvy about the, that risk taking. And then certainly once you go public, you know, you've got a public persona and you've got uh, commitments. I mean, you've got uh, SEC commitments about news and information that flows out from your company that you have to be much smarter about. But again, there's a lot of upside because people will listen to you. So I think as you market through that, you have to think about what's my, uh, what's the receptivity of the market to my message and how valuable is my, uh, how useful is my message to the audiences I'm trying to find. The one thing I would say too, as you're going through this size journey, as you're growing in the early days, it's really easy to be personal. You know, you kind of know your 20 customers or your hundred customers, you know, the best ones. But even as you get to thousands or tens of thousands of customers, even hundreds of thousands of customers, maintaining that closeness to customers as a marketer is really important. I always encouraged all of my marketers, like get to know some customers, get to be friendly with them, get to know them, hear them, know them as people. It's going to inform your marketing so much better. It's going to make our messaging better. It's going to, if you think of your customers as people, not as enterprises, it's going to help you so much because again, it really is people in enterprises that are buying your software, not necessarily enterprises. So staying close to the customer throughout the journey is another thing that I would say is super important. The constant thing you should keep through your growth as opposed to the things almost everything else is changing. It's great advice. Elisa, um, we're, we're coming to the end of our, of our time together for, for, for this episode. We're going to talk to you on Friday for Friday Fundamentals. Cool. But it's also... Obviously, uh, you know you didn't have a have a have a choice in the matter uh, when 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 you were born. But you yeah. but you're obviously a very successful woman, and there's lots of I think there's lots of talk about diversity out there. But I think particularly in sales, there's the, the reality is still that at the leadership levels, it's disproportionately men. What advice would you give to women that are coming up through the ranks that want to you know they want first of all they don't. They don't just want to be in any particular function. Maybe they want to be a sales leader or a marketing leader, but they want to sit at the top of the organization or they want to know the tactics, the skills, the strategies that they need to employ in order to get there. What's your advice? What, do you, what advice would you give to the folks well, out there? Number one is definitely like, look, it's still about hiring the right people. It's still about being a person who adds value. So number one is focus on what you can accomplish and what you can, how you deliver value. Because I just find that people who are consistently on teams that produce value that are successful, you know, they get recognized. And the good thing about our, our society and the way our capitalism system works is follow the money, man. So people who make money for other people often you know, get promoted because they make money for other people. So don't lose sight of that. It's really easy to lose sight of that and think like, oh, I'm so screwed. I'm a woman or I'm a this, whatever. No, you got to remember it's about skills too. Now, that being said, it does happen that, you know, there are biases and people don't see things. And a lot of times those biases are really obvious and apparent. 
but other times they're not. Um, you know, a lot of times it's, it's, it's just um, insidious. And so it's kind of the persistence. And, and so being persistent in a kind and uh, calm way is a really useful thing. And then, I, then thirdly, I'd say is be supportive. Be supportive of other people uh, of diverse backgrounds. You know, when you can help use your position, whatever, you know, everybody has certain amount of power or certain amount of capabilities or certain amount of influence. Use your influence and your power as a, as a cause for good. Help others around you because you'd be surprised how that'll come back and help you. Definitely. So be a supportive, helpful person to other people of any kind, actually, but especially for people who are um, of diverse backgrounds. And then I guess for everyone, I remember that, you know, in, in, in our hearts of heart, all of us feel like in some way, shape or form, we have diversity. We have a diverse background. Even the, the, the whitest male has something in his background that makes him feel like I fought to get here and it was hard. And so I think, you know, we can appreciate that about each other. But I also think we can then say to ourselves, but I had some advantages, particularly um, those of us who are less diverse, and I, you know, include myself in that. I did have some a lot of advantages, and so I try to remind myself constantly, like I was a, one of the lucky ones, and so I need to pay it forward. So I need to pay it forward. So when you do get into positions of power, realize that a lot of a lot of your success is not just due to who you are and what you did, but your circumstances. And so be appreciative for your circumstances, but be somebody who realizes. You can help other people who don't have those circumstances bring their talent forward. Imagine the world if, if, if imagine a world where the talent, all the talent we have in this world was used to its maximum level. What a different place this would be, right? What a different world. And I think all of us ought to think about that. How can I get the maximum talent out of the people around me? Because it's just going to make things better. We're going to be a more successful company. We're going to make more money. We're going to have happier customers. Good things are going to happen. And so when you focus it with that attitude, I'm just looking to maximize talent, to maximize value, to maximize results because good things are going to happen. I think that opens you up to the ability to accept um, people who are different and ability to help those people realize their potential. Inspiring words. Mm -hmm. I love it. Alisa, folks are listening out there and they might, you know, first of all, you might have folks that are running companies that would want, uh, want you to be their advisor, or maybe they just want some mentorship. Are you mm -hmm. open to people that are listening, reaching out sure. to you? Sure. And if so, what's a, what's a preferred mechanism for strangers to contact sure. you? Well, they can certainly reach me on LinkedIn. Um, that's an easy way to find me. And then if they forget, or if they're listening carefully, they can also email me. Um, I'm a Elisa at elisafink.com and that's E-L-I-S-S-A. Um, so I'll take, you know, I get, I get messages there and sometimes I'm a little slow replying. So don't be impatient and don't, don't hesitate to ask uh, again after, you know, a week or two, if I don't respond, <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, I, I have to say, I do like to travel a bit, you know, being, being semi-retired affords me that. So, so if I don't get back to you, don't be insulted, but, um, but definitely LinkedIn or my email address works fine. I love it. Well, Elisa, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank it was a fantastic you, conversation and uh, we'll talk to you on Friday. Okay. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Hey folks, Sam's Corner. Really, really like that episode with Elisa. Just, she's got passion, she's got expertise, she knows what she's doing. And, uh, you know, we talked about a number of important things, a couple, kind of two things to think about. The first is, you know, if you listen to me talk, you know that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm banging this drum all day long, which is about the average tenure of a high growth executive. And she talked about how she went from 5 million in recurring revenue past a billion past a billion and and that you know the idea that you should just be swapping people out every 10 to 20 million dollars every you know 18 months that's a fallacy at least for elisa and also for me i think that 
We're looking for people that can, that are curious, that are talented, and we solve backwards for talent and we give them opportunity to grow. Because if they leave the organization, they take the culture with them, they take institutional knowledge, they take years of understanding how to get things done within a company, how to treat people, how the company expects other people to treat people. And, um, you know, people, as much as we want to believe that everybody's sort of an interchangeable, you know, component part into the broader machine owned by the investors, it's not how life works. It's also why great teams are often not just the people with the very, very best athletes on them. Oftentimes, great teams are a combination of something both with greatness, with great talent, but also with that with that joie de vie, with something that comes together. If you look at the 2019 Washington Nationals, yes, we had Anthony Rendon. Yes, we had Max Scherzer and we, because I was playing on the team. You don't know this, but I was the substitute, you know, left fielder when, um, when Juan Soto wasn't playing. But the point is that we had lost Bryce Harper, and I'm sorry for the extended sports metaphor. I know it's very man-like to do, but the point is this. Great teams can accomplish great things, and it's not just about going out and buying or purchasing you know, the perceived number one talent uh, or using uh, a specific talent uh, interchangeably. Howie Kendricks hits you know, game-winning home runs both against, um, against the Dodgers and against the Astros who cheat. And that happened and he's you know he's 36 years old so the point that elisa makes is you don't need to swap out executives every 17 months what you need to do is create a culture that empowers and develops talented people and i think that that's a really really important thing i also think that she's you know she the way that she described and identified marketing is really interesting she said that when she was in sales she was a great opener but not a great closer and marketing's job is to open uh, which is frankly uh, how a lot of people define the job of sales development or sdrs so you can see why sdrs and marketing are so closely aligned marketing job is to open with the right message at the right time. You have to understand math. You have to combine data, but it can't just be data. It has to, you have to have some creativity, have some nuance and appreciation for the power of brand because brand is what you say. Brand is who you are. Brand is your message. And all of those things need to be aligned so that when you do have a demand generation channel, when you are sending a message to somebody at a specific time, that that message resonates and has carefully thought through and constructed. So so there's a lot more in there. And, and I really liked her, her idea finally about just, which, which implies agency, right? You know, if you're an underrepresented group, if you're a woman out there, if you're from a different geography, or if you, you've got some, uh, you know, some, some, some disability, whatever it may be, you have experienced difficulty and, and life is so much about circumstance and about luck and about fortune. But it's also when you do When you do try to take more agency and just be expansive positive, you can take control and ownership to a greater degree. And everybody out there has to understand that luck and fortune and circumstance has impacted their lives, especially, frankly, white men. But all of us also want to make sure that we we are thinking optimistically positively about how we can add value how we can add value to an organization, to a team, to a group of people. And part of adding value means paying it forward. It means taking the good fortune that you've received and sharing it with others and not pulling up the ladder uh, after you, which is sometimes you know, a metaphor that, um, that we talk about in my family about how certain, certain wealthy people, certain privileged people, they want to pull the ladder up. They don't want to give you that great job. They don't want to give you the extra equity. They don't want to give you the great, the, the great opportunity. They don't want to give you the extra, uh, you know, couple hundred thousand dollars from the exit that happened and those people sometimes they win sometimes they lose there's a lot of ways to win and lose in this world and it's not that good guys finish last it's that there's different kinds of ways to finish first and finish last a lot of assholes end up winning look at the person that's in the presidency but but there's a lot of a lot of great people too 
And so the thing about it is you can win being a good person and you are obligated, I think, to pay it forward and to share good fortune with others that are less privileged. Think about that. Go into the world with an attitude of service and help and try to take the good fortune that you've earned and, and, and discovered and has been granted to you and share it with others. And not only does that make you feel better, but it is long-term greedy because if you are somebody that can help people, that's what power is. Power is the ability to do things. And if you have the ability to to share and to, to generate opportunity for others, then by definition, people will come to you to receive that opportunity. And then all of a sudden, you have accumulated power and you can use that power hopefully for good things, but also to a certain extent for your own self-improvement. Anyway, didn't mean for that to be such a long rant, but um, something I feel passionate about. If you want to reach out to me, you can linkedin.com forward slash the word in forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. If you want to buy a great sales engagement platform, I think you should buy Outreach. Uh, they are the best. And um, I, hope you're st- I hope you are washing your hands diligently for at least 20 seconds. And I hope you're staying safe. And I hope you're treating your teams with kindness and generosity and graciousness because it's a difficult time for the world. And we all got to come together as a human race. All right. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time.